0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
1: So, so here's a joke for you. Uh, guess who I bumped into on the way to the optometrist yesterday? Everyone.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your party conversations. You just got a joke from author Thomas Pierce
0: that'll help break the ice. Yes, His short story collection, Hall of Small Mammals, came out this week, and we'll hear more from him later. Plus, we'll speak with JC Shandor, writer and director of the new film, A Most Violent Year. The National Board of Review just voted it the best film of the year.
2: Also coming up, Australian pop band twerps DJ your dinner party, writer Gustavo Arellano helps us to a new old Mexican beverage, and Mark Duplass, co-creator and star of the new HBO show Togetherness, asks the philosophical question, where's the happy button? It gets deep. It does, but first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Tonight, House Speaker John Boehner re-elected, holding on to his post.
3: California has finally embarked on constructing the first high-speed rail line in America. Over the year, private employers added more than two and a half million jobs to payrolls.
2: Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Manoush Amorodi. She is the host of New Tech City. It is a podcast from WNYC about, guess what, technology. Manoush, what story are you going to be talking about this week?
4: This is such a good story. It comes from the Washingtonian. Okay, Mm. so there's this town in West Virginia. It's called Green Bank. Just over 140 people live there and it is in the National Radio Quiet Zone. This is a 13,000 square mile area that the FCC said must have electromagnetic silence because this is where the government keeps the telescopes that listen to electromagnetic radiation coming off of stars and planets.
0: So cool. Right? Wow. But they can't hear us right now. So we could say Green Bank stinks. And they <laughs> can't <laughs> hear
2: us. But Quiet Zone, what does that encompass? Is it is it just radio? So
4: that means you can only have landlines and wired internet. No Wi-Fi, no cell phone towers, none of the stuff that we use every single day.
2: So it sounds like my kitchen, which,
0: which, (laughs) as far as I know, wasn't named one of these sites. Yes, and definitely
4: parts of Brooklyn, I would add. (laughs) What it actually
2: sounds like is heaven to a lot of people. You can't have a cell phone interrupt you. You can't, like, check the Internet at the dinner table.
0: Thank
4: you for the setup. Let me tell you who it (laughs) is heaven for, actually. It is heaven for electro-sensitives.
0: What is, yeah, is that a Myers-Briggs exactly. inventory kind
4: of thing? <laughs> it should be. It totally should be. No, these are people who what? say that electromagnetic frequencies, the stuff that, you know, radiates out of our cell phones and Wi-Fi, they say that it makes them sick. They get headaches, nausea, oh. chest pain, all these kinds of things. And like, you know, this is the modern age. There's nowhere for them to go except for... West
2: Virginia, this town. Green
4: Bank, West Virginia.
2: John Denver said West Virginia was almost heaven. Now we (laughs) We know for whom. Manoush Samarodi, thanks so much for the small talk. Oh, it was fun. And now time for cocktails. This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history, then ask a bartender to capture its essence in cocktail form. It's our globally respected history lesson with booze. Yes, and first the history part. Right around this time, back in 1933, an invention was patented that makes Brendan and I sound a lot better. Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
3: If you're listening to my voice on a radio, you have Edwin Armstrong to thank for it. Armstrong was an audio engineering genius. Among his inventions, a super sensitive receiver. That's probably part of the radio you're using right now. By age 33, he was a millionaire. So it made sense when, in the 1920s, the head of RCA suggested Armstrong tackle radio's biggest problem, static. See, back then, there was only AM radio, and AM broadcasts were, and still are, full of noisy static. RCA hoped Armstrong could come up with some kind of device that could make AM broadcasts sound better. Instead, he came up with a whole different way to broadcast. It was called frequency modulation. By varying the frequency of a radio wave, he virtually eliminated static. In fact, it was some of the highest fidelity audio anyone had ever heard. In winter 1933, Armstrong patented his process for FM radio. But RCA wasn't interested. They were about to launch the next big thing, TV. And anyway, FM threatened to render their AM empire obsolete. So they worked to keep FM from catching on. And when it did anyway, they wouldn't pay royalties on the technology. After a decade of fighting them and others in court, Armstrong finally wrote his wife a note and jumped out of his apartment window. Armstrong's widow kept fighting his lawsuits and eventually won millions. Today, an FM tower he built still stands in New Jersey. After 9-11, when TV and radio stations lost their antennas atop the World Trade Center, some used Armstrong's tower to broadcast.
0: So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the drink to go along with it. I'm on the line with Ben Schwartz. He is bartender and manager at Little Branch in Manhattan, a great cocktail bar. Our story's hero, Edwin Armstrong, was a Columbia professor, and his footprints are all over New York City. Ben, what drink did this story inspire you to make? We came up with the Clear Wireless. You were the first person to come up with clear wireless, if we're talking about cell phones. Yes.
5: Well, you helped. You were the inspiration.
0: <laughs> All right. So, so similar to how Edwin eliminated static with FM, you've created a drink that clears, clears our heads, clears our minds? We made
5: a clear drink. Oh. you look right at it and look right through it. So it'll be nice and crystal clear. Tell us about it. Well, I was inspired by the Marconi Wireless, a classic cocktail. Um, inspired by the creator of the Wireless Telegraph.
0: All right. And this
5: is a darker drink with sweet vermouth and an apple brandy, and I thought that we, I would want to do just what Edmund did and clear this thing up so we can see what we're working with.
0: Well, how come Marconi had his own cocktail? That seems, of all the inventions. You well, because inventions story?
5: were hip and new, and everyone wants to key into what's hip and new, and uh, things were coming out like the filmograph. When that first right. came out, it got, a, it got a cocktail named after it as well.
0: M- maybe someday we'll have a, a, a Roomba cocktail.
5: Sure, the iPod cocktail.
0: Actually, you shouldn't operate a Roomba after a cocktail, I think, so maybe that's a bad idea.
5: Yes, watch out, cats.
0: Right. So uh, tell, me, tell me what's in this drink.
5: I start with uh, two ounces of uh, white grape brandy, a Pisco brandy from South America, adding okay. in an ounce of a white vermouth or a Bianco vermouth. Then a dash of orange bitters. It's stirred on ice and poured into a cocktail coupe and finished with a lemon twist. And if you could twist that lemon up extra twisty so it would look like a wave, that would fit perfectly.
0: <laughs> like, like as if a radio wave. You got it. Actually, and could you stir this drink in an, with, uh, with an antenna? Maybe? If you had
5: to, if you had one on hand, that would be a very appropriate tool. Enrico,
0: uh, I'm really excited about this idea of cocktails based on inventions, okay. you know? Like in the future, I'm looking forward to the Segway, which I'm assuming will be served in a fanny pack, possibly with a helmet on the side. That'll be popular. That's right, especially for tourists. Yeah,
2: you could have the selfie. You just pour it into (laughs) your mouth from above. That's right. Just stand in the middle of the street, drink it. These are great ideas. (laughs) Uh, Folks, while you wait for those to be invented, the recipe for the clear wireless can be found at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we've made some small talk and swigged a little history. Let's chase it with the secret sauce of any dinner party, music.
0: For that, we turn to Jules McFarlane and Marty Frawley of the Australian indie pop band, Twerps. Their sophomore album, Range Anxiety, comes out this month. And this week, Pitchfork picked a tune off it as their track of the week. Nice. Here they are to DJ your dinner party. Hi,
6: this is Marty.
7: And this is Jules.
6: We're from the band, Twerps.
7: This is our dinner party soundtrack. You know, if we were setting up a dinner party, we'd perhaps have some delicious Tasmanian cheeses or some New Zealand cheeses, a wine or an Aperol spritzer, and you know, everyone's invited if they're in the right hemisphere.
6: The first track I've chosen today is called Right Here by the Go-Betweens. The Go-Betweens are a Brisbane band, 1970s, and they're a much appreciated band, but I feel like they didn't get the, the worldwide attention.
7: You know, it was like a band of two couples, predominantly, when you think about the forces that sort of led them to write those songs.
6: Jules and I are in a relationship, so I think that's kind of cool, it builds tension and you write songs about each other, uh, or maybe not. I'm keeping One of the reasons I chose this song is because I like the line in it, right here, right now, whatever I have, it's yours. It's a nice, warm sentiment about sharing and sitting around a dinner table and eating, even though it's about a lover or
7: a partner. Our second song is called Observe Life, and it's by New Age Steppers. Ah, uh, this would be 83, I think. The first wave of punk had sort of broken and people were turning to reggae for inspiration.
8: Baby, everything will be An time
3: for
7: a bit of a softer groove, nice for a dinner party. It's got a homely sort of clutter sound to it and a beautiful vocal take by Aria. Ari Up's a pretty wild singer, and this is an example of her at her tamest. She's more known for being a punk singer, but yeah, this is my favourite incarnation of her.
6: I feel like the evening has been set. You have record players on in another room at a, a nice, perfect volume. so it's... Ooh,
7: volume is contentious, isn't it?
6: volume is contentious because I'm very bad with volume, Julia loves to turn the volume down on Uh, me.
7: I know and it makes me sound like such a square and it's like I'm sick of hearing me pleading in defense of my volume control. I'm really not a square I just want to hear what you have to say you know. I'll confess for Marty that he went out last night, so I was at home scratching my head over this one, so I got to choose two songs, which is a bit greedy. Our third pick is a song called Fortune by Mayo Thompson. The
6: bride sits down to breakfast in the dining room. Mayo Thompson is an American songwriter from the 60s who was also in a very talented, awesome band called The Red Crayola.
7: Such a groovy, sort of soft... Laurel Canyon-y vibe to its instrumentation.
6: This song is perfect interlude for coming down after dinner.
7: I feel like it's had a pretty good response at previous dinner parties. I'll put it on and, and everyone will be like, what's this?
6: Generally, Jules will kind of tone the party down. I want to get the party going. Which brings us to our glorious track named Stranger.
7: For me, like it was a sad song, but no one notices, you know? They're just kind of into the groove.
6: It's the dessert.
2: Party soundtrack from Jules McFarlane and Marty Frawley of Twerps. Their album Range Anxiety is out January 27th. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but in just a minute, we're going to investigate
0: Michelada Madness, and filmmaker J.C. Shandor tells us about a superstar toll booth. When the dinner party download continues.
2: Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, author Thomas Pierce tells us a shaggy mammoth story. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's writer and director
0: J.C. Shandor. His debut film, Margin Call, about a Wall Street firm on the cusp of the financial crisis, earned an Oscar nomination for Best Screenplay. Mm -hmm. His next movie, All is Lost, featured an acclaimed solo performance by Robert Redford. And Chander's latest is called A Most Violent Year. It's a drama set in 1981 when New York City was racked with violent crime. It stars Oscar Isaac as Abel Morales, an up-from-the-bootstraps immigrant trying to grow his heating oil business ethically in a corrupt city and industry. In this clip, Abel is speaking to a group of new salespeople.
1: Now, after you've done the math and you've shown them how much they can save over the long haul through proper maintenance, you need to get them to sign. So, after you show them the number, you look up at them and stare. Stare longer than you should. (laughs) This is not a joke. You will only keep this job if you close and that's not funny to you.
0: The National Board of Review just named the movie the best of the year. When I spoke with JC, I asked him where he got the idea for it.
8: I had been working on a story about a husband and wife who were building a business together, you know, and and all the sort of complexities that come along with that. So that's sitting there bouncing around for 5 or 6 years. And then right in the middle of that, a a horrible, violent act, which, like, oftentimes in the creative process, things that you don't think will ever kind of steer you towards something do. And so the Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings happened about 10 minutes from my house. And um, I had a first grader at the time, and I was dropping her off at school. And my first reaction when I drove in the day after that all happened is there was an armed guard at her school. And I was sort of somehow pleased with that it was sort of made me feel better in a way
0: you just felt safer dropping your daughter
8: yes i don't know it was weird right i mean i didn't know that at the time but i was like oh i guess that makes sense yeah that's good and then in a weird way this idea of escalation starts bouncing around in my head that led to me kind of wasting time and, and looking on the internet at crime statistics and zeroing right in on, on 1981 is a really interesting year, a transformative year for the city.
0: So it sounds like violence was something that was on your mind. It's clearly in the title of this film, yet, this isn't a terribly violent film. There's an element of menace. You know, when I was watching it, I walked away thinking more about the idea of honor uh, and how Abel has this kind of rigid idea about doing things the right way is it fair to say that that's kind of the dramatic premise of the of the story? Yeah, I
8: mean the movie it, the intent was always to use the like structure of a classic gangster film, you know, going back to the 30s basically, you know, and use a lot of the kind of hallmarks of what is essentially the foundation of any violent thriller, you know, which is that gangster film action film kind of structure. It was to use those sort of storytelling techniques, but what you're actually doing is putting real people kind of battling through um, more mundane problems, which is trying to grow a family business.
0: The heating but, oil business, yeah.
8: oil business, but in the most violent year, uh, you know, or one of the most violent years in the city's history.
0: Well, why did you choose a Bell who's an immigrant, right, who is uh, a striver, who starts as a driver at this heating oil company? Why, why choose him? That's a different it's different than the subjects you've chosen in other films. It's certainly different than your background,
8: yeah. I was um I wanted to tell a, a sort of immigrant tale, um, but not in any macro, you know, sense. uh, You know, obviously Hispanic immigration, you know, Hispanic Americans coming into this country um, is the largest immigrant group in the last, you know, 30, 40 years. And um, also moving kind of perfectly concurrent with that, Hispanic men are represented in American films, especially these type of films that I'm sort of structuring this on as either, you know, as Oscar said last night, I I can't quote him directly.
0: Oscar Isaac the actor. Yeah,
8: Oscar. But he was, you know, as a Hispanic male, there's not great representation in, in in U.S. films. You're either the sort of saint working in the proverbial fields, you know, or you're this ultimate sinner, a la Scarface or something. And and so there's not much really in between for what is essentially this huge immigrant group who's come into the country and made such a change, you know, for the better.
0: I want to get back to that idea of honor. Was his allegiance to doing, quote-unquote, the right thing genuinely like an impulse to, to do the right thing or was it just a business tactic because it's what separated him from the rivals who were kind of gangsters and taking advantage of their clients
8: I think you know hopefully just like a lot of the decisions that I try and make in my life you try to line those two things up obviously you know like doing well and, and helping your business if he was let me put it this way a different way if he was answering that question that person would tell you they would never think of it as two separate things you know if you actually look at what he does in the movie and what they do in the movie, they're nothing close to gangsters. They are actually just small business people wanting to be medium business people.
0: Yeah. All right, we have two standard questions we ask each of our guests. And, and the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews?
8: <laughs> um, I'll answer that a little differently. I he's he's no longer here. Um, but if he you know if he was, he would have been tired <laughs> of people asking me the question, which is um, you know is this a sort of retread of a, of a Sidney Lumet film, which I take as the highest highest compliment. Um,
0: Sidney Lumet, who's known for his New York films, Dog Day Afternoon, uh, Serpico, and, and others. And
8: I think uh, the sort of um, ethical and moral quandary of his characters is certainly something that that I. admire as a filmmaker but i think if sydney were still here today he'd he'd sort of say back down this kid's made three movies let's let's slow down before we even you know bring my name up in in a sentence with him uh
0: so our final question is uh tell us something we don't know this can be something personal you haven't shared in interviews before or it can just be an interesting fact
8: yeah it's not a super deep um you know kind of undertake but it's really neat kind of tribute to that which is the Opening shots of this film at that toll booth, where the sort of first act of violence happens in the movie, um, is the toll booth from the famous Godfather scene where the shootout happens.
0: That is that is- intentional?
8: No, it's um, like many things in the film business. It is pragmatic. <laughs> that happens to be these old, the same reasons they used it is the same reason we used it, which is it's an old abandoned um, toll booth that only gets used a couple months in the summer. So it's going to Jones Beach. Oh wow! So it's just these old classic toll booths that sit out there and you can use them because no one's there. I think that toll booth has literally been used in like 26 movies or something. <laughs>
0: J.C. Shandor, his film, *A Most Violent Year, opens this week. Mm. And Rico, I interviewed J.C. at the Bowery Hotel in Manhattan, which is this really nice, swank place, in a neighborhood that in 1981 looked and felt very different.
2: (laughs) No doubt. And this movie really takes you back to a bygone New York. I imagine it does, except for the toll booth. (laughs) That's right. Well, some things never change. Things should be in the historic registry. Uh, Folks, our show changes each week. To keep track, head to dinnerpartydownload.org.
9: Eavesdrop.
2: South Carolina native Thomas Pierce has published short fiction in The New Yorker and the Oxford American. His debut collection of surreal stories set in the South is called Hall of Small Mammals. Today we overhear him read an excerpt.
1: Hi, my name is Thomas Pierce. I have a new book of short stories out, uh, and I'm going to read from one of them now called Shirley Temple III. It's a story about a mother and a son, Mama and Tommy. Tommy is the host of a nature reality show called Back from Extinction, in which they actually bring back long extinct animals from extinction. And Mama is throwing a party when the story begins, a wedding party, and she's waiting for her son to come home. He's very, very late. Mama stubs her menthol out on the steps and goes inside to stack the dirty dishes and glasses. Upstairs, she changes into her nightgown and takes her pill. She's on the edge of sleep when she hears the truck in the driveway. Tommy is home. She wants to sing. She wishes the party wasn't over so everyone could see her son. When she greets him out front, he pulls her into a deep hug. She's already forgiven him, already forgotten how mad she was an hour ago. Well, Ma, I've got a good reason for being late, he says, and pats his truck, which has a back from extinction magnetic decal on its door. Something I need to show you, he says. Pour us both a drink and meet me around back. She pours him some grapefruit juice and a tall daffy duck glass. Tommy comes into the house through the back door. He pulls a flask out of his pocket and tips it into daffy duck. Follow me, he says, and leads her into the backyard, both of them swatting their way through a veil of mosquitoes and moths attacking the overhead floodlight. There in the freshly mowed grass, Tommy has something hidden under a quilt. It's moving. What I'm about to show you, he says, you can't tell a soul about it. If you did, it would be major trouble. Trouble with a capital T. He sips his drink and tugs the quilt away. Mama takes a step back. She's looking at some kind of elephant with hair. Don't worry, she's not dangerous, Tommy says. Red Island Dwarf Mammoth. The last wild one lived about 10,000 years ago. They're the smallest mammoths that ever existed. Cute, isn't she? The mammoth is waist high with a pelt of dirty blonde fur that hangs in tangled draggles to the dirt. Its tusks, white and pristine, curve out and up. The trunk probes the ground for God knows what and then curls back into itself like a jelly roll. What's a gosh darn Red Island dwarf whatever doing in my yard, Mama asks. Listen, Tommy says, this is very special. Other than the folks at work, you're the first modern human to ever lay eyes on such creature. Her episode hasn't even aired yet. Go on, you can touch her. She's friendly. Her name's Shirley Temple. Shirley Temple, Mama asks. You can't name it that. Shirley Temple was Shirley Temple. She points to the dog pen under which Shirley Temple the Great Dane is buried. The dog had tumors that couldn't be removed. All right, Tommy says, I meant it to be honorific. Call this one Shirley Temple II, if you'd like. He puts his hand on the mammoth's tusk. Or maybe we should call her Shirley Temple the third since, you know, technically the first one was the good ship lollipop Shirley Temple. He runs his hand along Shirley Temple 3's back. The mammoth looks up at him with dark, mysterious eyes. It doesn't seem to know what to do in this new setting. Is it full grown? That's what they tell me. Isn't she amazing? Mama nods because the mammoth really is a scientific miracle, a true marvel. But then again, it's getting late. She's been awake since 4am, and she's already taken her pill the moonlight shines down on the three of them. They decide to keep Shirley Temple 3 in the dog pen for the night.
2: Thomas Pierce. Find out what happens next by reading his story collection, Hall of Small Mammals. That piece was edited for time, and you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now, the main course,
0: where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party the food. And, Brendan, this week I drank
2: beer for work.
0: All right. Yes. Keeping your New Year's resolution. That's <laughs> proud of you.
2: But uh, this was not simply beer, though. This okay. was a Michelada. That Ah. is Mexican beer spiked with sauces and condiments you've likely at least heard of these things Oh yes and the food trend agency bomb and Whiteman predicts increasingly complex micheladas will be showing up in restaurants all over the place in 2015 Hmm. so to learn more about him I headed to Santa Ana California and met with Gustavo Arellano he writes the syndicated column ask a Mexican and he wrote the book taco USA about the history of Mexican food in America I first asked where the word michelada comes from.
10: No one really knows what the etymology of the michelada is. Um, there's one crazy theory that it was named after a Michelle, like a, a male Michelle, which it's absolutely not true. That's about as true as a margarita being named after Rita Hayworth, whose real name was Margarita Cancino. I personally think that a michelada is a contraction of many words. So michelada could be like me, chela which is a slang for a beer. Elada is going to be a cold beer, so it could be my cold beer. But even then, I don't know. Yeah, that doesn't. There's a lot of things that could be called my cold beer, like just plain beer. Exactly. They're, they're, that doesn't uh, take into account the spiciness of it, the Worcestershire sh- sh- sauce that might be in there, the tomato, everything. So I have not found the clear origin story just yet, but when I wrote Taco USA in 2012, the Michelada still wasn't the uh, phenomenon that it currently is now.
2: Um, What would be a standard Michelada? Now they're kind of being upscaled, if you can use that term, but what would be the classic?
10: The classic Michelada, you're gonna have a Mexican beer, preferably Negra Modelo, although you could subside with a swill that is Corona, Uh, So so thanks for destroying Corona as a possible (laughs) underwriter of our show. (laughs) You don't want them as an underwriter. You you, you want Negra Modelo. John Steinbeck's favorite Mexican beer, by the way. Uh, So you have your beer. You have some spiciness. It could be a Tabasco. Depending on what you like, your hot sauce, maybe something a little bit more savory like Tapatio or Valentina. Some Worcester sauce just to give it a little bit more savoriness. Decorate the rim of either your bottle or your glass with some salt and also some uh, chili powder. And then a bunch of lime. So, you want something that's gonna be spicy, that's gonna be a little bit sour, that's gonna be savory. In essence, you basically want to drink Mexican food. Michelada is not a beer so much, or a beer cocktail so much as it is Mexican food. That's why, you know, you compare a Bloody Mary to a Michelada, the, uh, the Michelada's far superior to the Bloody Mary. Why do you think? because it's more savory. You could drink more of them, frankly, because the Bloody Mary, really, even if you try to uh, spice it up, it's just vodka, or if you want to Mexicanize it, call it a Bloody Maria, tequila, and then, you know, canned tomato juice or whatever. At least with most Mexican bars, they try to have some sort of class with the Michelada. They'll try to do in-house ingredients. Everyone will be a little bit unique. With Bloody Mary, you could just get your Bloody Mary mix at your CVS, and that's that. Although, you're starting to see Michelada now at CVS too, which is crazy.
2: So we're here at a place called Chapter One in Santa Ana. Why did you pick this joint to take
10: me to? Uh, Chapter One, the modern local, it's this great hipster place, like good food, not really Mexican, great cocktails, and they have a michelada that is part Mexican, part American, and also part Japanese. So you're going to have your classic tomato in there, your Worcester sauce, your mystery stuff, and then they include some wasabi, some yuzu, and I forget the other part until I drink it, then I'll remember. It's magic. That's the other part. But for me, it's indicative that the michelada is no longer in the domain of Mexicans.
2: What is... Um in Mexico, is it more of a working-class thing? And what?
10: how would you encounter it? I mean, is it... Uh, the michelada, you're going to probably get uh, in your working-class parts. And really, you're going to find the michelada at seafood restaurants out of Marisco's place because all the great beer innovations have come in Mexico have come from seafood places. Your cubeta, which is a huge bucket of beer, is a staple of these Mexican seafood restaurants. So the michelada makes sense because Mexicans, we also love shrimp cocktails and anything involving tomato and the sea. So for me, at least, I could easily see some drunk guy saying, hey, here's the rest of my uh, shrimp cocktail. and I have this great spicy broth. Let me just drink, uh, pour it into my uh, Negra Modelo and see what happens, and the results are perfect.
2: All right, so these have now arrived. They have arrived. Gonna take a sip.
6: Salud.
10: Oh yeah.
2: (laughs) Telling me that background of the kind of briny shrimp cocktail, Mm -hmm. there is that brininess in it, obviously because of the salt that you're adding to it. But also there is that there's a kind of seafood essence, and I believe there's fish sauce in what they put in this.
10: Yeah, in, in this particular uh, michelada, you could have, it's almost like eating for me sushi right now. The the seaweed you get that sort of like umami savoryness. So here you have a little bit of spice at the very end. You have a really heavy uh, flavor at the very beginning of that fish sauce, then you have the beer. Of course, this is a hipster place, so we're going to have some craft beer from God knows where. But it it all makes sense. This, I, I would say this is a great michelada, and really indicative of where micheladas are going to in this country. What do you think about this being sort of taken to the hipster Domain. So micheladas are now conquering American bartenders and American drinkers. Yes, we're here at a hipster bar, but I've seen micheladas at working-class white dive bars in Wisconsin. I mean, for crying out loud. But th- that's great, though. That means that Mexicans are taking over. And anything that means that, I'm for.
2: Stavo Ariano, he wrote the book Taco USA, and he's editor of the alternative OC Weekly. All right, and while Rico sobers up, we're gonna take a break. I had
0: one michelada. Exactly. Come on. Coming up, etiquette lessons from TV star and filmmaker Mark Duplass. Man. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that
2: gives you an edge in your party conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a new tune from Panda Bear. And author Antonia Murphy tells us why we should not raise alpacas. Hmm. But first, let's learn some etiquette.
0: Yes. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them today is Mark Duplass. Yes. He stars in the hit comedy series The League, and he's appeared in dozens of indie flicks. With his brother Jay, he's also written and directed acclaimed films of his own, which take a wry look at modern life, Mm. including Cyrus and Jeff, who lives at home. Mark's latest project with Jay is the HBO comedy series Togetherness. He also stars in it. The show debuts this weekend. And Mark, welcome to our show. Guys, I could not have written that intro better myself. I mean, <laughs> let's not lie, you did write that I intro. I,
11: I did write it. I made you. I made you re- There's a gun to your head right now.
0: Guys. You were like, I have a free three minutes between my other jobs. How about I write for you guys? <laughs> you got it.
2: We appreciate that. So let's talk about this TV show of yours. It is a comedy set in Los Angeles, but this is not the glamorous side of LA living that you present here. This is pretty regular-looking middle-aged people kind of stumbling through very real, messy lives, which is standard for your work with your brother. Why have you made that choice?
11: Well, in the case of Togetherness, you know, the show is is set in Los Angeles, but it's really about being on the fringes of L.A. and being not able to access all the things that look glamorous to you when you look at it from the outside. And it's, it's about kind of uh, trying to maintain those personal dreams of yours that made you feel inspired and excited when you were 13 years old, but at the same time trying to be a good, friend and a good spouse and a good parent and those two things seem to be constantly at odds to me and I can never get that balance right and I used to really annoy me and then Jay and I just said well you know what let's just put it on screen and examine it.
9: Wildest dreams I like this. If you were to follow your bliss
11: Mm -hmm. what would you do? Anything in the whole world. Anything. Barnes and Noble third floor green leather chair I would get Peppermint tea, I would get an original copy of Dune, and nobody would know where to find me, and I'll be all by myself and just.
4: (sighs) Okay, I guess what I was thinking um, was more a couple thing like something for us together right yeah so in that yeah kind of no yeah you're, you're
11: right i'm sorry that was yes of course
2: there's also the to, to me there's a feeling of characters who have gone through their lives they've achieved a certain amount of success and then realizing that there's an emptiness somewhere
11: i think so too jay and i always call this recalibrating the mountains which is like i think when we were <laughs> like uh when we were in our mid-20s our our ultimate career goal was to get a feature film into Sundance. And I remember sitting in that theater. I was 27 and Jay was 30 when our first movie, The Puffy Chair, premiered at Sundance. And we cried and it was beautiful. And then we got outside and we started walking around. (laughs) And then we started looking at each other and we're like, okay, yeah. we're here. <laughs> now what? Where's the happy button? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, why, where does the crown? <laughs> what am I young? supposed to do? And that is when the panic attacks start, guys. And, uh, you know, I've, I guess Jay and I have sort of realized, like, we've come way further in our careers than we ever thought we would. I mean, I never thought I would be sitting here talking about myself <laughs> and my career in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I could in my bedroom, but it wouldn't be, <laughs> there wouldn't be a microphone in front of me. And, you know, it's become... Very, very clear to us that uh, achievement of any goal is not going to bring us any lasting happiness.
2: Well, look, maybe you can bring some happiness to our listeners. They have sent in etiquette questions. Are you ready for these? Excellent. All right. This first one comes from Park in San Luis Obispo, California. And Park writes, the households on either side of ours both use perfumed laundry detergent and or fabric softeners. Their dryer vents assault us daily with the scent of aerosolized urinal cakes. This person should be a screenwriter. Should we share with them the studies showing cancer links to the chemicals in those products? Maybe just a nighttime sortie to redirect dryer vents or just continue to endure with closed windows for parts of each day. Mm. This is tough. Well,
11: judging by the writing style of this person, uh, I believe that you're not an emotionally evolved person in particular who's able to do... Uh, head-to-head confrontation well. So what I would recommend is, um, I would recommend uh, an Old Old Testament approach of an eye for an eye. I would invite each neighbor over for dinner, and I would cook two soups, and those soups should consist (laughs) of the actual detergent that they're using. And say, you're welcome to keep using your detergent, and for every batch of clothes you wash, you will have to drink
2: a bowl of my soup. Mm-hmm. Drink a bowl. Yeah. Is that eye for an eye? They assault <laughs> your nose, and then you poison them. Yeah,
11: I guess you're right. I guess it's I guess it's death for a nose or something. But, but the, the, like...
0: the
2: other the other sad part is
0: Park's neighbor is trying to be clean you know what i mean like park's neighbor isn't smoking or doing you know or like rendering bones in its bathtub you know like human sacrifice and that's so that's going to be a tough argument for park
11: i have one thing to say the road to hell is paved with good
0: intentions (laughs) yeah (laughs) so and it smells like fabric softener yeah that guy all right there you go park That's just the etiquette attitude we want on the show.
8: (laughs) Super polite.
0: This next question comes from Will in Saratoga Springs, New York. Will writes, I woke up at 6 a.m. on New Year's Day to start a slow pork roast. I brought it to a party later that afternoon and only had a little of this perfectly cooked roast. Is it rude to ask my host if I can take some leftovers with me? If it is rude... What is a subtle way of getting some of my meat candy back? It's an excellent <laughs> question. I think this this, the, this is really in the details here.
11: I mean, if you've brought over a nice bottle of wine or a bottle of champagne, you clearly can't bring that home. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, mm-hmm. that is just mm-hmm. as much of a housewarming gift as it is in addition to the party. But... Mm-hmm if there is some stuff like meat that has a time limit on it, it could go bad. You could be at someone's house who lives by themselves. There could be a few pounds of meat there. I would hope that you're in the level of uh, friendship and communication with this person Mm -hmm. where you can walk up to them and just say exactly what you just said there. Hey, man, look, I'm feeling a little insecure about this, but I also feel like there's a good chance you won't eat all this meat. If you tell me you're going to eat it all, or even if you're going to have another party tomorrow, say no more, I'll back off, you take the meat. But if you tell me... It might be going bad in your fridge five days from now. I wouldn't mind taking a quarter of it back. And also, you don't have to answer right now. You know, you throw that out at the beginning of the party and let them think about it, you know? Before anyone's even cut into it, it's like, if there's anything left over here, I want you to know. I've got dibs. Don't take seconds. Exactly. But then, like, slowly, that allows you to slowly throughout the party, passive-aggressively make plays for the meat, (laughs) which is really what any good party is about. All right, well, there you go. That's how you get your meat
0: candy back, Will.
2: Here's something very simple from John in Pasadena, California. John writes, should I tell my brother that I disapprove of his girlfriend?
1: Mm. Perfect
2: for you, because you have a brother. So you have to be extremely careful in this
11: situation. But you have to have this conversation. Um, In my opinion, what you need to do is not call a breakfast. Don't don't call a breakfast meeting with your brother? If you call a breakfast, you have to sit and look each other in the eye, and it's going to be too difficult. You call for (laughs) a drive or a hike. Because if you're driving... You don't have to look them in the eye and you can say a <laughs> wow, bunch of things. clever. If you're hiking, you're looking forward and watching for vermin, so you don't actually have to look each other in the <laughs> eye and it makes everything about 25% less painful. But you have to have this conversation. Uh, really?
2: You can't just kind of shut up and let that person live
11: his or no her life. No way. You got to You got to hit this thing on the head because in my opinion and I'm going to get I'm going to get real therapy serious for a second here.
0: <laughs> oh, here we go.
11: If you avoid this issue, it will say to him in the end that you think you are better than him and no character better than him because you're just going to you're just going to let this thing go and just yeah, let him have his time it's a little patronizing how does he yeah. know you're being patronizing if you say nothing because when you're brothers and when you're close you're gonna yep. sense that stuff oh. yeah. when you're three and a half beers in everybody's <laughs> gonna know how you feel and it, and it'll it will reduce your intimacy if you tell them about this you'll have a huge fight but then you'll hug it out you'll get over it and you'll be closer it's worth
2: it all right from poisoning your neighbor to hugging your brother yep Mark Duplass, thanks for telling your audience how to behave Thanks guys.
0: Mark Duplass, he stars in the new HBO series Togetherness, which he
2: created with his brother Jay, premieres this weekend. And folks, if you want permission to take home the leftover pork roast, we can make that happen for you. Send us your etiquette questions via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time for chattering class where we are schooled by an expert on some party-worthy topic. Our topic today, farming, or at least a beginning farmer's attempts at farming. And our guest is Antonia Murphy. In the early 2000s, she and her husband moved from Northern California to New Zealand, had a couple of kids, and found themselves, to their surprise, caring for livestock on a rural farm. Her very funny book about her experiences is called Dirty Chick, Adventures of an Unlikely Farmer. And she joins us now from New Zealand. Hello, Antonia.
9: Hi, thank you for having me.
2: Thanks for being here all the way on the other side of the world. As the title suggests, you are probably the last person who would end up on a farm before New Zealand. What was your experience with farming?
9: Uh, Zero or close to it. (laughs) I had taken care of my father's chickens once, except one died.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is how the book opens with, I, I don't know if you can really talk about it on a PG-rated show, but your chickens met an an untimely end.
9: It's a little painful to talk about. Long story short, don't keep a bereaved duck in the same enclosure as a chicken. He got a little too amorous and a little too vigorous, and uh, the result was tragedy.
2: Yes, the chicken was loved to death, but yet you end up taking care of a farm in rural New Zealand. Uh, I should point out, you were basically farm sitting at first, and you were out there partly because there was an affordable school there for your child who has a genetic condition. This was not just a lark. But nonetheless, to the real farmers, you were considered what's called a lifestyler. Tell us the difference between those two groups.
9: Well, serious farmers don't talk much. They don't have much time to talk. They take care of hundreds of head of sheep or cows, and it's their business. Lifestylers are um, living out in the countryside because it's beautiful, and they might have anything from uh, a few cats and some heirloom tomatoes to we have about 40 animals of different stripes and varieties. Although 40 um, animals,
2: animals—that's to this urban dweller, that's pretty serious.
9: Well, when I say 40, like a quarter of those are our ducks and chickens. Um, you throw in a couple of dogs, a couple of cats, a few alpacas, some sheep and goats. you got yourself a little farm.
2: Well, although small as it is... Actually, something that really grabbed me about the book is as soon as you get to the farm, immediately and often... You have to deal with death.
9: Ah, yeah. Well, that was really the genesis of the book, is that I came out to the country with these really pink-tinted ideas of what farming was like, like basically being even closer to my food than going to the farmer's market. Yeah, right. Um, The reality was that uh, we had to deal not just with death, but with dirt, with blood, with worms, with parasites, like all this really gross reality. I don't want to give you the impression that I started offing animals left and right. We're actually really careful with our animals. We take good care of them. But when we came in, um, there was a pen full of chickens that the owners for whom we were house-sitting was on the property. And these chickens had terrible leg mites. They were hobbled, and their legs were bumpy and gruesome and horrific-looking. And we had to deal with the fact that they actually had to be euthanized. It wasn't a situation where they could be cured. Uh, So we did it, actually... By we, I mean my husband um, did it quickly and as painlessly as possible. Um,
2: And this is just one of many misadventures with various animals. I actually would like to just read you a list of the creatures you encounter, and maybe you could just reel off the first thing that comes to mind about each one of them. Yeah, good. Let's start with a rooster.
9: I will do my best. Um, Roosters are angry and violent. They always (laughs) become mean.
2: Um, Alpacas? You mentioned that you still keep alpacas.
9: Yeah, alpacas are neurotic, and if you get too close, they'll spit at you.
2: Yeah, at first, when you first get these things, you think that they're going to attack you.
9: Yeah, they've kicked a couple of kids. They're a little high-strung. The one big white one has appointed himself the leader of the pack. And so if a child gets too close, he'll kick. But they don't have hooves um, like cows or sheep. They have pads on their feet like dogs. So it's mostly just a scary experience.
2: But uh, you do describe just like literally being covered with green goo that you describe as smelling like a grave.
9: Yeah, it, it smells, well, I mean, it's it's this sort of fermented slime of the grass that's been digesting for the past few days inside them. So, yeah, it's not cologne.
2: Delightful. And uh, a goat?
9: Ah, goat. When they give birth, a giant bubble comes out the backside. <laughs> um, a large water balloon came out of my goat. And at first I was alarmed. Then I looked closely and saw that there was a little face in there and a little hoof. But it was terrifying at first.
2: Of course. I have to, I mean, you're saying that you really didn't know what you were doing. How did you kind of justify yourself to those, you know, lifers that have been in it forever?
9: Um, At first, the farmers didn't take me seriously at all. This might have had to do with the fact that I talked like an American and I wore Halloween animal ears all the time. Um, But they saw that as we were acquiring animals, they were well taken care of. I went and, because the farmers wouldn't give me any information, I went and talked to a veterinarian with a whole list of questions. I checked books out of the library. I asked as many questions as I could, even when they answered me in a sort of grumpy tone of voice. And uh, farmers can see. They may not say much, but they'll look over and they can see if your animals are well taken care of. And so slowly, grudgingly, now they're starting to smile at me. And I sometimes even get a wave. There
2: have been a lot of kind of very earnest books about urban folks moving to the country. This is not one of those. You clearly see kind of the insanity of what you're doing and the oddness of the community you're part of, but you're still there. Do you remember, was there a moment where you felt like you finally fit in?
9: When we bought land, that made a difference because that meant that we were serious about staying there. Hmm. Also, I talk about in the book how uh, my son has an ongoing medical condition and he had a bit of a crisis during during that year that I, I tell about. I was away in America and our friends drove to the hospital, made sure there was dinner on the table, took care of our younger daughter. They were just right there, no questions asked. And that really made me feel like we'd come home.
2: You don't think maybe that the same thing would happen in a different place?
9: I think people are basically decent anywhere. But when you live in the city, you can depend on 911. In the countryside, it would take longer for emergency services to get out there than for you to just drive yourself. Mm. So people have to rely on one another more.
2: Do you plan on staying forever? Would you ever go back to the city at this point?
9: I don't know. Sometimes I turned to Peter. The other day, I turned to him and I said,
2: this "Is your husband?"
9: That's my husband, Peter. I said, "You know, I think I miss America," and he said, "Oh, you're my Miss America." <laughs> so.
2: Antonia Murphy, her new book is called Dirty Chick, Adventures of an Unlikely Farmer. It comes out later this month. And that's the Dinner Party download for
0: this week, folks. Be sure to tune in next week when we'll speak to comedian and TV star Nick Kroll, among others. Till then, you can keep up with us all week long on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle
2: is DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker produces the Dinner Party download. Our digital assistant is Brittany Martin. Our interns are Christiana Cabal and Ed Morales. Daniel Ramirez engineered. Peter Clowney is our executive producer.
0: A hearty welcome this week to our new listeners in Cleveland. Yay! We're happy to be airing on WCPN. Welcome North Coast. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's
2: dinner parties. Noah Lennox, a.k.a. Panda Bear, is a founding member of experimental pop band Animal Collective. His new solo album entitled Panda Bear Meets the Grim Reaper comes out this week. Here's a track called Boys Latin. Bon appétit.
0: For attending the dinner party, download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico
2: Galliano. See you next. Oh, you made me lunch. That's yeah, nice. it's your always late for meeting soup. Uh huh. Eat up.